Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out that they may think a little differently after seeing the bottom of the ocean, but still need help thinking of catchphrases, or that they tend to run into doors more frequently wearing bike helmets. Maybe the last one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. This episode is fun. I'll just say it. It is fun. We go deep in the ocean and deep in conversation. Before we get started, a few things up top. For the love of everything you hold dear, if you're having a bad day, listen to the very end of this episode, even if you're having a great day. At least listen to the last 20 seconds of this episode. I drop funny things at the end of each episode, and this time, I think I've really outdone myself. A quick shout out to Motorless Motion Bicycles in Madison. I can't say enough good things about them. I'm not getting paid to do this. I just had a wonderful experience with them this past weekend trying to help me get fit for a bike. And this has happened uh, six to 12 times. They're great. Second, a shout out to the Is This Science podcast crew. They just released an episode with the scientist whose work was featured in X-Files. And they watched that clip together. Lastly, you're going to hear about plastics in this episode. You might get a little angry. So here are a few nonprofits that work on plastic pollution in the oceans, and I'll talk about them at the end too. Ocean Conservancy, Oceania, and Five Gyres, G-Y-R-E-S. If you want to learn more about plastic pollution, check out John Oliver's recently released video about plastics on YouTube. And without further ado, let's get deep with Karthik Anantharaman. So pause for a second. This little bit I'm about to play is key to understanding the rest of the episode. So this is a little bit of a chat with Karthik before we actually dive into the actual interview, but it makes everything else click. You know, I also have to say, like, when you emailed me and I saw the name of your podcast and it said Deeper Than Data, that's literally an analogy for everything our lab does because we work in the deep oceans, deep lakes, and we deal with a lot of data science. So I, I read that. And initially, I thought that's what you named this episode as. And then I was like, okay, his, no, no, his, his podcast in general is called Deeper Than Data. It's not this episode. <laughs> but uh, I thought that yeah. was quite interesting. Oh, that's that's a fun coincidence. Um, yeah, I'm glad you didn't think like, oh, here's this guy coming in and he's just stealing our catchphrase completely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wish we had a catchphrase. Uh, Deeper Than Data would have been a nice catchphrase. But yeah, we, we haven't really come up with any sort of... Uh, fun catchphrases really for our lab. Yeah. Maybe it'll come out during this interview. Maybe. Yeah. I'm open to uh, open to catchphrases. All right. Back to the normal program. Hey Karthik. Thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here, Ben. Thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. So like always, I'm going to start with your name and the pronouns that you'd like to use. My name is Karthik Anantraman. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, 
my physical description i am 59 uh, i am male and i am bald i lost all of my hair in grad school uh, i did enjoy grad school but i still lost my hair uh, so that is something i complain about uh, uh, with regard to my position and roles uh, right now i am an assistant professor uh, at uw madison in the department of bacteriology and in this role i conduct research and teach microbial ecology fantastic and you remembered the questions i was going to ask you so great great job i didn't even ask you any um so you started going into this and i think this is the hardest question for everybody can you give me a two-minute research pitch of the research that you do I like to call the folks in my lab microbial ecologists. Uh, what we study are microorganisms and, and how microorganisms impact their environment. Uh, when I say microorganisms, it primarily refers to bacteria and viruses. So how do bacteria and viruses uh, impact the environment around them? Depending on the environment, uh, the impacts might be very, very different. So if the environment is a human gut, this is something that would have an impact on our health and specific diseases. If the impact are, if the, if the environment in question are, let's say the oceans or lakes, then uh, there are deeper significant uh, questions here at hand. For example, questions associated with how these environments would respond to climate change. Because when you think of it, microorganisms that exist in the environment, in these waters of the oceans or say lakes, are the ones that are driving the chemistry of the lakes. They are the ones that are gonna con control and dictate how these environments are going to respond to climate change or any sort of environmental perturbations. So essentially what my lab does is focus on looking at microorganisms and their interactions with the environment. The approaches we use uh, are a combination of fieldwork, experiments in the lab, and a lot of computational biology. And I'm very excited about computational biology because uh, when it comes to computational biology, it's essentially a blank slate or a blank canvas. Uh, so we use a whole host of tools and approaches that advance our understanding of microorganisms and viruses in different environments, primarily through the analyses of DNA and RNA. So what we do essentially, let's say when we go out into any system, be it the human gut, from poop or from the bottom of the ocean, we are trying to extract all of the DNA that exists in that environment and then piece by piece put together the uh, identity of the organisms, try and extrapolate their roles in the environment, and then try and understand their overall impact at various scales. Cool, that's super fascinating. Um, I guess in, in the end, you could also say with the environments that you work with in the human gut and in the hydrothermic vents, you get to the bottom of a lot of these environments. Yep. We are always trying to get to the bottom of uh, the uh, answer. Uh, so we're always trying to get to the bottom of the question or say, but yeah, you're right. You're right in terms of the analogy. Uh, yeah, deeper than data. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna start asking you a little bit about your journey. Um, my first question that I always ask people to get into that mode is, who was your first crush, if you can remember? I think I'll, this is probably 
a boring answer and maybe i'm giving away my age actually i'm not that old but uh growing up uh one of my favorite shows was the wonder years uh, this is you know preteens uh before that too but uh, i i really love the wonder years and winnie who was the lead uh, in wonder years was definitely my first crush i actually don't even know what happened to all of the uh, actors in that show i never sort of followed up because that's what happens with first crushes right they fall away by the wayside but uh, i used to watch that show uh, every afternoon uh, it was i mean the innocence in that show really really connected with me and yeah vinny was definitely my uh, first crush yeah did you picture ever going on dates or they like holding hands with winnie i don't know <laughs> i i i don't know uh maybe maybe i'm not sure i, I mean the issue the, so so the so in the show essentially uh, uh the lead uh, was constantly in a circle of trying to impress when he and not getting everywhere so then you know when you're watching that show it's a coming of age story but you also have these existential crises where you're like i don't know if i'll ever get to hold hands with vinny if this guy doesn't get to hold hands with her so it's one of those existential crises there yeah so was this i and i was watching a video of you on youtube about your research and in the beginning you were mentioning that you lived next to an ocean which helped get you interested in science was this about the same time that you were living by the ocean uh not exactly so i was brought up in a in this sprawling city of mumbai india and uh so the city is on the coast so you're not far away but we lived you know uh, we didn't live particularly by the coast but we lived you know less than an hour's drive away from the coast uh, i was always interested let's say I was always fascinated by the ocean but I don't think I was genuinely uh driven by curiosity associated with the ocean until I went to uh, college. And what happened is that from Mumbai I went uh, south to study at the National Institute of Technology and that's a, a university that's on the coast so essentially every evening I played uh, soccer on the beach uh and I think that's where I sort of fell in love with the ocean. Uh, I always sort of appreciated it. I had, you know, respect for it, but you know, falling in love is very different. So, I I generally I think I fell in love with the ocean in college. But even then, uh, I never sort of thought that uh, the ocean would be so intricately associated with my career back then. Uh India and and its its educational system uh leaves a lot to be desired for uh, that's the criticism i will afford and what i'm specifically referring to is that unlike uh, you know the system over here where typically students have the choice associated with what they want to pursue in college that is not afforded that choice is not afforded to students in india so uh, that a part of that is where you know i felt like i was sort of boxed in and i can sort of describe that a little more as we go along but i was sort of boxed in and you know when it comes to regrets that i have i do have some regrets but on, the thing with regrets is regrets are dependent upon choices that you make what if uh, you know you didn't make that choice it just sort of got fostered on you is that still going to be a regret so that's sort of where uh, all of this sort of comes back i feel like you know somewhere along the line uh you know i was destined to do something fun with the oceans and i'm just so happy that 
that fun component is actually now a part of my career. Yeah. I mean, the, you. so I've literally only talked to you for maybe about 15 or 20 minutes, but I think you are generally a fun person to begin with. I would bet people in your lab are thinking like, this is a pretty safe space. You know, it's enjoyable to be in lab. Were you like that growing up as well? Kind of like more outgoing or sharing in space? I think I'd like to think so. Uh, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm quite extroverted. I am not I'm not at all an introvert or say I've never been an introvert for the most part. Uh, I'm quite extroverted. Uh, my wife likes to remind me of that a lot in that she and I are sort of, you know, we have slightly different personalities. I'm definitely more extroverted than her. So in general, I'd like to think, you know, uh, I'm easygoing and I hope that folks in my lab actually like that. Uh, you'd have to ask them. Uh, and I hope they genuinely like that. But in general, I'd like to think that uh, my personality traits are around being extroverted and in general, easygoing. I, I've taken a lot of that and fostered it into my mentoring style as well, uh, yeah. some, somewhere along the line. I'm sure the extroversion also helped when you're trying to meet people on the coast um, playing soccer in, <laughs> in the college years too. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there was this really nice group of friends I had who we all you know played soccer all the time. I'm still in touch with uh, most of them. Uh, you know, everyone's sort of gone on in different directions, had different careers, but uh, yeah, a love of soccer and those times on the beach is what is the connection that remains between all of us. Yeah. Is there a particular like sight or smell that reminds you of the beach that you played soccer on at all? Uh, yes, there's a particular smell, but it's not a fun smell. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. so, so in general, you know, like, uh, there's a very distinctive smell of the ocean and you can associate that, uh, with any beach really. And in general, I'd say the beach smelt well, but what would happen and a very distinctive smell, uh, was when, you know, there'd be low tide and every once every let's say few weeks the tide would be really low and uh, this, it would be a really un unpleasant smell that would envelop the entire area and that's when it's, it's essentially the smell of death you know and uh, those are the days when we would not play soccer so that's why i said you know there's some things that i remember uh, every day if if it smells like nothing for the most part then you enjoy your time on the beach uh, and then there are days when you don't want to be anywhere near there yeah, I feel like we get that that pungent kind of deathy smell even up here in Madison with some of these things and all the algal blooms. So, so uh, our lab does a little bit of work in Lake Mendota uh, in the bottom waters too, and those are the best times for us to sample. So, our lab works a lot on sulfur metabolism, and sulfur and hydrogen sulfide specifically are the smell of rotten eggs. So when the lake smells bad is actually when we want to sample the lake. That's the best time for us to go out into the lake. But I completely understand where you're coming from in that there are those certain days just after an algal bloom when yeah the entire area around the lake smells really bad. Yeah, and it's amazing too. The little bit I know about um, sulfur metabolism and even like sensing sulfur we as humans are particularly sensitive to smelling sulfur because it's usually something that reminds us of, of death or something that's rotting. 
Um, so it's interesting that it's so unified, uh, one across the world, and no matter like where you go with a body of water, you can kind of smell this. Yeah, sulfur. Uh, I mean, the smell of sulfide is just so distinctive. Uh, you know, it, it, there are other times during my, uh, you know, when I was a postdoc and I was conducting some research in Utah, we were also sampling uh, hydrogen sulfide water. I mean, the smell of hydrogen sulfide is something so distinctive. I could, I, I think I have a pretty good nose for it by now. Uh, when we sample in the deep sea and, you know, we bring those samples up, if you ever open those samples in a closed room, that's it. The smell's not going away for like two days. Uh, and those are very high concentration samples as well. So the one thing I, I tell all of my students when we are working with these samples enriched in hydrogen sulfide is just to be careful because at very high concentrations of hydrogen sulfide, we can't smell it anymore. So the higher the concentration, you know, you'll stop smelling it at some point of time. At that time, it's not gone away. It's just that it's really high. Uh, so we have to be careful around these samples, uh, which we are, but you know, we also do chase them uh, everywhere. Well, that's neat. I don't think many people can say that they've smelled the bottom of the ocean. So I don't know if this is the case for you. I would love to go to the very bottom of the ocean um, in a submersible, turn on all the lights and just kind of see what it's like. I think it'd be otherworldly, even though it's, you know, it's on our planet. Um, and I would assume that there'd be something like really majestic about being at the bottom of the ocean. So it's a little ironic that it smells like rotten eggs, but it also means it's really cool with all the life that's living down there. It's really, really cool. You know, just to even reminisce about the experience of being in a submersible, it, it, it's, I mean, there's just no comparison whatsoever to looking at video coming from a robot. Video coming from a robot is great. Uh, it'll advance science. But being in a submersible, there is real emotion attached to that. And, you know, when we, so, so when I was down in Alvin. Real quick, Alvin is the name of the submersible. And going to the bottom of the ocean, there was another scientist in, in, the, in, in Alvin, in the port. Uh, he uh, he was from the uh, he was from Michigan State University, and both of us were sitting down. And both of us, you know, for the first two hundred meters or so, as Alvin sinking down, we couldn't we couldn't stop talking. And the reason is that the initial fifty meters, uh, with the pressure and everything, there's all sorts of sounds coming. So both of us are like, you know, in a weird state of panic. We're just like, well. Is everything around us? We're looking at the windows. Can you see any water coming in? You know, it's it's all sorts of weird emotions that are coming in. But as as uh, and then there's sunlight. You know, for the first two hundred meters or so, there's a little bit of light. But after that, all the light's gone. So you switch off the lights, and all you see is this light show around you coming from the bioluminescence. That's when you just stop talking and you just start staring into the abyss. And what is interesting about that process is that you can, so it takes about an hour for the submarine to reach the bottom of the ocean. You know, 40, 40, 40 to 60 minutes, let's say, depending on the depth. But in that hour, you know, for the, for the first five minutes, you are in a weird state of panic. Then you're assured that everything's fine. And then for the next 20 minutes, you're in awe. And then you start talking to each other and there's this weird lull where you're like, okay, let's just get to the bottom now. 
because now you want to get to the science, but you have to wait for another 30 minutes. And then when you get to the bottom, uh, the bottom of the ocean is a really interesting place. 99% of the bottom of the ocean is just a big desert. There's just nothing. There's just absolute nothing in any direction that you can look at. You'll come across very few animals or fish. Uh, you really have to, you know, look hard to find anything. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this abyss, will you'll you'll see hydrothermal vents, which is just teeming with life and everything. So it's it's a very weird dichotomy that exists at the bottom of the ocean. There's like nothing, and then there are oases of life. So. We spend most of our time in these oases of life and we love it there. You know, we are awed by the color, we're awed by the life, we are just awed by all of the possibilities that this brings about for science. But in reality, that's not what the majority of the ocean floor looks like. I would imagine each time that you, maybe it's, you know, stopped a little bit after you've gone down a few times, but when you come back up from the bottom of the ocean, your view on life might be a little different. Am I wrong about that? No, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, you know, it, it, so at the bottom of the ocean, there's just no light. So all of the life down there is not dependent on photosynthesis, which is what everything on the surface of the earth is you know, mostly driven by. So at the bottom of the earth, it's primarily driven by chemosynthesis, which is a process that uses chemicals instead of light from the sun. Uh, so it's one thing to learn about this in textbooks. It's another thing to see it on like amazing documentaries or something like that. And it's a completely different thing to see it with your own eyes and believe it. And uh, all of the colors that are down, down there, you know, uh, to think about all of that too, all of life's diversity in front of your eyes at the bottom of the ocean. There are so many possibilities that that affords. I mean, think of it. Life could have originated at hydrothermal vents. Uh, places that have not seen light ever, let's say, are in fact some of the most colorful on the planet. So all of these thoughts, you know, when, when you're seeing them with your own eyes, and you realize you are 2,500 meters or let's say 3,000 meters under the uh, uh, surface of the ocean. It's, it's, it's an otherworldly feeling. Yeah, I, I love all the shows that are about the deep ocean. Most of the time when I watch that, I'm just constantly thinking like, what the hell is going on down there? But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's alien life within our own planet. And it just seems... It's a, like a different direction in life like well obviously went in that from like an evolutionary standpoint but maybe even going forward too you i mean you're absolutely right you know and uh, don't quote me on this because uh i think a physical oceanographer might give better statistics but i i'm pretty sure that the bot bottom of the earth is extremely unexplored to the point where we have even explored the surface of mars and we have better maps of Mars than we have of the bottom of the ocean. And that in itself is, uh, it's disappointing to say the least. You know, here is this amazing resource right in front of us. And all we do is, for the most part, just dump plastic 
into it and not respect its inhabitants for the most part so it's that's that's a really disappointing uh facet of uh the world right now you know when we go out and do science you know there's i mean some of the most striking imagery that i can remember of course the bioluminescence and stuff the nice stuff you remember but what you would remember even more so than all of the beautiful imagery is uh images of trash and garbage at the bottom of the ocean plastic at the bottom of the ocean you know fishing lines everywhere mylar balloons buckets i have seen i mean so much garbage and trash at the bottom of the ocean it's really really disappointing yeah and i think you've even named one of these vents is like garbage dump or something yeah, like that yeah we we named it the garbage vent uh, so in a recent uh, cruise that we did in 2019 we were exploring a new hydrothermal system in the gulf of california and uh, we got the chance to name a lot of these hydrothermal vents so the system was called the big pagoda because it was a really big system like all the vents and uh, structures were really enormous and then there was one of them that was just that just had plastic and fishing lines all around it and it was just it was really disappointing to see uh, some of the imagery there was also very striking in that octopuses and something some other animals let's say had made homes inside some of them there was this balloon that we thought we could push away and then we just saw a tentacle come out of it and then we were like okay we can't touch this uh, so we named that went garbage vent in the thought that maybe that would draw attention uh, to a reader i mean it's a pretty profound name um I think very few people know what the bottom of the ocean looks like and then like you're saying it's just it it's really disappointing and also it's just something that this this remote place that you think very few people ever get to see already has our footprints there exactly. without ever being and it could be it could be mine it could be anyone who's listening it could be yours and it's we just don't know because we're not attached to that plastic cycle it's it's very it, it really puts things into perspective for us you you could be 3000 meters under the surface and amidst alien life but you are not too far from plastic ever yeah so when you were in college playing on the ocean playing some soccer on the ocean was the interest in life what kind of kept jettisoning you forward or was it interest in the, the plastics and none actually none of these so my path into where i am it's somewhat organic i'd like to think uh, it's it's somewhat convoluted convoluted uh, but it's also quite organic uh, so in college i studied civil and environmental engineering and not in a million years back then would have would i have imagined that i'd be running a lab that that does all of this microbiology virology and computational biology not in the least bit so after getting uh, a bachelor's degree in civil and environmental engineering i thought i'd uh, pursue a masters but i was very interested in chemistry uh, my mom was a chemist so i was naturally you know drawn towards chemistry somewhere and i thought i'd study environmental engineering and environmental chemistry specifically so i went to the university of michigan uh 
and uh, got a master's in environmental engineering there. And while I was getting my master's, I was doing research in environmental chemistry, and we were studying uh, ion transformation. So essentially, uh, you know, I was trying to synthesize these nanoparticles that would break down pollutants. The nanoparticles are were made of iron. So they were iron uh, hydroxides and iron oxyhydroxides. And the idea there is that they're very reactive, so they can break down different kinds of pollutants in the environment. Uh, so if you had an aquifer or something like that, you know, some, some sort of natural water system, then these could help clean those up if there were any pollutants. The interesting uh, realization came when I was trying to understand how these are synthesized and what happens in nature, really. And the realization was that rather than, say, chemically synthesizing these compounds, it's bacteria that can actually make them naturally. So uh, if bacteria can make nanoparticles and they're quite, let's say, efficient at it, then I was I, I began to wonder as to why I was interested in, you know, this chemical process of synthesizing these uh, these uh, uh, chemicals and and. Uh, the process from there on in. So that's where you know my interest in bacteria, microbiology, and all of the processes uh, that bacteria can, let's say, be utilized for came about. So after that, uh, for my PhD, I, I decided to switch from, let's say, uh, environmental chemistry focus more towards microbiology and biology. And then uh, at the very beginning of my PhD was when DNA sequencing and uh, computational biology associated with DNA sequencing and genomics really sort of exploded. And I happened to be at the early uh, stage of, you know, where those uh, uh, those those uh, fields were. So I, I sort of I feel like, you know, I jumped on the bandwagon there and uh, I've been doing microbiology ever since. So through grad school and through my postdoctoral research, I've been doing microbiology. Uh, trying to come up with different approaches to leverage genomics data, specifically DNA data, to advance our understanding of microorganisms. And that's sort of where, you know, my lab has also really gravitated towards. So it's been a very organic journey, I'd like to think. Uh, I, I cannot say that, you know, I dreamt of being a microbiologist since childhood. I'm not going to make any of that up. That was not the case. Uh, for whatever reason, um, Again, it's 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 interesting because you know I mentioned how the so I was brought up in India and the Indian education system doesn't let you explore different fields to sort of naturally find your fit. You're sort of forced down a path. So I'd like to think that I've found my natural fit, but it took took me a fair amount of time and exploration to get there. Yeah. I know I was actually just chatting with uh, a potential grad student in our department yesterday and just encouraging going on these roundabout paths because I feel you bring so many more skills than the just direct path. I've hopped around the country doing AmeriCorps a couple of years in fields that I was not trained to do. I was a personal chef for a little bit, which does not really apply to graduate school, but you know, it's, it's, the soft skills, like being able to talk to people, then when you apply it to science, then we can do stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, everything, 
so so that's sort of where i look back at a lot of things i've done i've looked at, at my uh, look back at my education let's say in civil engineering or my masters in environmental engineering i look at a lot of these look at them in the past but i don't regret any of them because uh somewhere along the line those skills are still still you know being very very useful to me uh, i'm still uh, i mean the math skills the advanced math skills that engineering gives you the knowledge of chemistry that i have uh, i feel they're a huge advantage to me when i'm thinking about things from a much uh, bigger picture perspective so you know it's everyone needs to really go and find themselves and their and use their own path to discover their true uh, liking really and i feel like overall you know could i have done this better or more efficiently maybe but i don't regret any of it and i'm really happy where i am yeah and sometimes even finding those uh positions or interests or trying out those positions of interest and you and you find out oh this is definitely not for me is just as worthwhile as finding something you're interested in yeah yeah absolutely i could not agree more so with your uh education did you do did you hop around um from india for the masters or the phd uh i moved to the us in 2007 and i started my masters in environmental engineering at the university of michigan so then um where did you go for the phd my phd was also at the university of michigan so i finished my phd so i started my phd in 2009 i graduated in 2014 uh and uh, then i moved uh, to university of california berkeley so i moved to berkeley for my postdoctoral research and then i started my position here in 2018 so i've been here about 3 years now how often have you been able to see family back in india uh no so my brother actually goes to dartmouth so he's a phd student in computer science uh, studying security at dartmouth but my parents are still in india uh i you know before the pandemic we'd get to see them every year uh, at least once a year if not more uh, but because of the pandemic now we haven't seen them in over a year and i don't know when this is going to change but yeah here we are i'm definitely not that the distance that you are from your parents but um even being 8 hours away i've had to do the same thing where i i haven't seen them in probably a year and a half almost at this point um and it's a struggle sometimes um i don't think that's really talked about always in academia it's it's a struggle um academia is an interesting interesting uh, environment i'd say so a lot of things to like about it uh, but it can also be stressful and again you have to take the positives with the negatives uh, you know i i love to talk about the positives more uh, it just sort of it's more feel good that way in general you know whenever we get the chance we do like to go back to india we like to travel within india as well so me and my wife are big travelers or at least we were big travelers before the pandemic let's see how how things change we also you know to make things more interesting for us we also had our first child during the pandemic so our first, our son is now almost 6 months old and he hasn't seen another human essentially uh he hasn't seen either of his grandparents he hasn't seen any other human other than us so you know it's it's one of those things where 
hopefully this comes to an end sooner rather than later. Do you have something you're like most excited to teach your son? I'd like to uh, take him, I'd like to travel the world with him. I mean, both me and my wife are really interested in doing that. And specifically, the reason is that I think more so than anything else that we have done, it's traveling and experiencing other cultures, be it through their food, their life experiences, uh, just the time that you spend in a country that's so foreign to you, whose customs may be very, very foreign to you, is just so enriching on a personal level. Uh, it just broadens your horizons so much that, you know, that's something I want to teach him. I think when it comes to, say, respecting people, respecting cultures, I think travel can really help do that. And uh, that's essentially what we'd like to uh, you know, sort of teach him. Just respect everyone. Be a nice, decent human being. There's nothing more. You know, I'm, I have no other expectations whatsoever, other than just be chill and be a good human being. Yeah, um, maybe that can be your lab slogan. It's just yep, be chill. Be chill. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, you're, I would agree wholeheartedly with you. It's you know, being kind, being respectful. I think would, no matter your profession, get yeah. 80% of the way there. Um, you don't have to be the smartest. If you're a good team player and respect people, they're going to want to have you yeah. around. I mean, you know, it's an absolute misconception uh, amongst people that all scientists are smart or very smart or something like that. No, no one needs to have, you know, Einstein's IQ. No one, um, no one needs to, I mean, that's just not a regular person. Scientists are just regular people. You know, all of us are very different. Some of us may be smarter. Some of us, you know, may not be smart, but would, uh, let's say we are just good human beings. We, you know, we are good with experiments. We are good with procedures. I mean, there's just different kinds of scientists, you know, so there's no profile that just fits all of us, none whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't even have to prompt you. <laughs> to say that but that's yeah that's one of my goals with this podcast is just to show we just you know our lives happen to go on this journey um and there's nothing that distinguishes us from regular people you know and the regular people's even in quotes there um i know plenty of people that are not in science right now who would be extremely successful in a phd if they wanted to do that or lead a lab um, but it's just a different path that we took. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've um, when it comes to thinking about uh, my own career, uh, you know, we've thought about say alternate careers. You know, after uh, after uh, my engineering degree, I was considering whether to work for a bank. Uh, I had a job offer, but actually, both me and my wife had job offers back then, but. We chose. We we decided we wanted nothing to do with it. I I don't think I'd have been happy there. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things. Like we could have all chosen um, alternate careers, but here we are. You know, genuinely for the love of science, and that's all that counts. You know, if you if you if you're curious and uh, you're interested in exploring new ideas uh, to just sort of broaden your horizons, you know, you'd be a great scientist. And that's sort of what I like to tell, you know, let's say new recruits or folks in my lab as well, you know, they, they all come from very different backgrounds. And that's wonderful because, you know, if people come from very different backgrounds, both academic as well as personal, 
then they just have so much to teach each other. It's wonderful. And on that same vein too, is there a piece of advice or something that you wish you knew in academia or in your career um, before getting started? So the one thing I think uh, training through graduate school and uh, and let's say postdoctoral research simply does not prepare you for is uh, the lack of time and the mountain of administration work that befalls upon you when you start your uh, academic position. Because when you're a graduate student or a, or a postdoctoral scientist, you're essentially just doing research. Uh, but when the moment you become faculty, uh, you know, you come in thinking, yes, you're going to do great research and uh, you're going to teach. But then there's all of this administration work. Uh, you have to run your lab. You have to write proposals. You have to think about funding your lab. Uh, so there's just so many different facets of it. So I don't think any training necessarily prepares you for all of the multitasking that you have to do. You just sort of have to pick it up along the way. That's, we're all, you know, I talk to other assistant professors and I feel like we're all in the same shoes. Uh, some people, let's say, have more support than others, but essentially everyone's just winging it. Uh, there's just no uh, right way to do this, but that's sort of how it is. Uh, you know, the, the, the look from the outside is that we're all doing research and teaching, but in reality, we are doing much more. Uh, you know, we do service, we do administration. Yeah, and then we worry about how to fund the lab. So it's just a mix of a lot of things that science right now and training right now does not prepare you for. So you just sort of jump into the deep end of the pool and you figure out uh, how to stay afloat, really. I've had people, you know, not even that many on this podcast so far, but the small sample that I have had uh, who are just starting their faculty careers have said, you know, it's taken me years to get like that first big grant. So many times like spent in a car, just kind of crying or just like venting to other people. Um, they don't, yeah, they don't talk about that necessarily in grad school yeah, at all. I mean, I, I can, I can see, uh, you know, I can empathize with where uh, they would be coming from uh, because it's, it's a, it's a real existential crisis in a way, thinking about how to keep your lab funded. Uh, you know, in general, I'd like to say that you just sort of have to, you know, the one, the one, let's say, um, I mean, I, you know, what I want to say here is that you, you just have to sort of keep, keep focus on the task at hand and just keep going with it. So this is something I tell my students and my postdocs, you know, they apply for fellowships uh, and let's say, you know, their fellowship proposals get rejected. What do you tell them? You know, they write small proposals and they get rejected. What would you tell them? You know, you want to help them out, but the key really with, uh, proposals is that you know once you're above a certain threshold in terms of quality there is a certain randomness to it and that's the scary part uh, so you know you just have to keep trying until you know you get a little bit of luck on your side but if luck is in play then you just cannot predict how things will go with regard to time and that's the scary part because at the end of the day, uh, with assistant professors, especially the pressure and times and so on are real. So I can completely understand where they're coming from. So uh, 
you know, in some ways, this anxiety associated with getting grants and funding can be pretty hard hitting, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and speaking about some of your, you know, after some of your grad students get rejected or maybe not just uh, they don't receive a grant, is there a favorite failure that you have? Uh, I don't know about a favorite failure. Uh, initially, you know, so I, I mean, I'll just go through, say, the process of how I deal with failure and how I actually advise my own students or postdocs to deal with it. One thing I like to tell them that it's our duty to try, because if you have a goal to get something, you're not going to get it by not applying for it. So you apply and, you know, if you get it, great. If you don't, you have to keep moving forward. You cannot look back. I mean, if there are positives that you can take from it, let's say from reviews or something like that, feedback, that's great. And that's essentially what I do as well with uh, uh, my own failures, let's say. You know, I've had, uh, I think with time, I've sort of, uh, I've learned to tackle failure a little better uh my first you know fellowship proposals and stuff that got rejected i felt really bad about it essentially not questioning why i was doing this but not having answers to what i should do differently uh, because with feedback you know it can be quite granular so so that's sort of where i'm coming from so i think it's important at these times to really take a step back give things a couple of days and uh, then look at things with a very clear mind. And that's what I've sort of trained myself to do. Uh, it, it did not happen overnight or something like that. But now I think I can handle failure fairly well. Uh, but I don't know if I have a favorite failure. It's, it's just, you know, every proposal failure hurts because there's so much time that's gone into it. And I feel like I learn from all of my failures. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. I always like asking this question because people don't usually have a favorite but at the end they'll wrap up with saying well it's because of all these failures that i've learned that's that's the key i mean i've learned uh, a lot of interesting things i feel like uh, a lot of the successes that i've had be it in terms of you know really good work that our lab has done our graduate students have published amazing papers our postdocs have published great papers uh, we have gotten good proposals funded. I think all of this cumulatively somewhere it comes from the failures that we've had because, we, you know, surely we've had papers rejected where we thought they shouldn't be rejected for whatever reasons. Uh, you know, we have we've had papers rejected because we couldn't do certain things because of the pandemic. No one cut us any slack. So there, you know, it's not a favorite failure. It's a regret. But what are we going to do? I mean, at the end of the day, somewhere I also think there are others who might have had it much worse than us. So why even complain in this scenario? You know, we have had it pretty, pretty good, I, I, I think. Uh, so I don't want to complain and say they, I don't want to blame, let's say, the pandemic or something like that. So that's where, you know, you sort of give motivation to your students, your group. Um, failure is just a part of science. That's it. You, you just have to learn from every failed experiment the, the amount of time I spent in grad school running failed experiments, uh, specifically, you know, I, I, what I would say is uh, the deep sea and hydrothermal vents, hydrothermal vents are great to study, uh, but hydrothermal vents have a lot of chemicals, you know, a lot of uh, heavy metals, toxic chemicals and stuff like that. 
So when you're trying to extract DNA from those samples, it actually gets very tricky because all of the commercially available kits and stuff are uh, designed for sort of boilerplate samples. Uh, they're not designed keeping a, a deep sea a sample rich in iron and other other chemicals, uh, something like that. So I've uh, I've you know hit my head against the wall so much in grad school, thinking I would not get anything. My entire PhD would just be a wash if I can't get this to work. Eventually, everything falls into place. But you just there are those those times when you know you think everything's for crumbling around you, everything's falling apart. But, you know, you sort of hold yourself together, you trudge ahead. And all of these successes that we have right now are just built upon failures. So shifting a little bit, now that the world is opening up a bit, you've got six-month-year-old son. What's something that you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to traveling again. Uh, I'm, I will, first, I'm looking forward to being vaccinated. Then I'm looking forward to sort of... Uh, traveling a little bit you know right now we just haven't had a break for so long we haven't had any sort of a break so maybe getting a little bit of a break would do me and my wife a world of good uh, i'm really looking back looking uh, forward rather to just sort of get back into the office uh, get back into the routine that i really enjoyed pre-pandemic uh, you know talking to my group face to face having those conversations Frankly, uh, with Zoom, uh, we don't have that level of personal interaction, so it's just difficult. Uh, so I'm just really looking forward to having some semblance of a routine from here on in. Because even though I have a routine right now, it's just, you know, my house. And yeah, it's it's just uh, being in the confines of your own house uh, is not... I mean, we, we've reached the end of the line here. So I'm really looking forward to... Being outdoors without a mask, I'm not saying about a mask necessarily, but just being outdoors and not being wary of any other human around me. So that's the scary part or say situation that I find myself in all the time. So just looking forward to not having the anxiety of another human in a certain distance around me. Yes, me too. Absolutely, me too. Okay, before we get to our game, I w was debating asking you this question. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't. So part of your research looks at sulfur metabolism in the human gut. Um, as you mentioned before, those are smelly compounds, often hydrogen sulfide. I, I wanted to ask you, because you look at how these could sometimes maybe perhaps elevate the risk of colon cancer, uh, are my farts killing me? <laughs> uh, so excess hydrogen sulfide in the gut is not a good thing. Uh, it's... Uh, it you know, microbes could certainly be associated with that. I don't want to say they're killing you because it's about perspective. Uh, if you're, I mean, colon cancer uh, and a lot of diseases uh, have a genetic component as well as an environmental component. The environmental component is where the microbes come along. So if the microbes are the only ones responsible for your uh, smelly farts, then that could be a problem. But there is also a genetic component here that we don't understand. Uh, so there's a little bit of yes and no. The In reality, uh, farts are just a natural uh, human mechanism. It's a reaction mechanism. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with them being smelly. But it's just a case of uh, your microbiota, 
your genetics and specifically uh, what's happening with regard to the tumors. So it's it's something that we are making a lot of progress on and there's you know really good data suggesting that microbes are driving the production of hydrogen sulfide and that is uh, elevated during colon cancer, but we don't have any instruments, for example, that will allow us to measure this elevated hydrogen sulfide. Uh, we don't, so, so there's a lot of things, maybe in the next, if you invited me back, let's say in the next five years, maybe after five years, in about five years time, I think I might be able to give you a better and more refined answer. But until then, I'm just gonna say, you know, I'm gonna give you the, uh, the safe answer, which is we are doing our research uh, right now on this. <laughs> yeah, good, safe one. I am going to, so I'm about to happen, I think, to the dating world once it starts, you know, opening up again. But, you know, if I let one rip on one of these dates, I can say a professor told me, you know, it's just a natural bodily function. Um, if she says it smells, it's like, that's your perspective <laughs> on these parts. More than anything else. Um, yeah. Thanks for indulging me on that You're question. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to move on to our game. Before I explain what's going to happen, I'm going to ask you for six different things. Um, so first, I'd like an object. Okay. A, a ball, a soccer ball or a, some sort of a ball. All right, ball. A household chore. Making coffee. Does that count as a chore? Uh, I don't want to say doing the dishes or something. You know, back when I was drinking coffee, it was always a chore to make the coffee until I had the coffee. Then it was great. Then I could say it's my morning routine. Yeah, so I, I like to uh, do pour over coffee. So it's it's a chore because I'm standing there for like 10 minutes or so. So it's not like, you know, a machine's doing anything for me. So, yeah. Yeah, coffee. Okay. Uh, famous person. John Oliver. Mythical creature. Uh, Godzilla. Godzilla. All right. I like these answers. Um, okay. Bodily function. Uh, bodily function. Breathing. Breathing. And a number. Seven. Seven. Okay. Perfect. All right, Karthik. Um, I was brainstorming our game last night, so this is going to be... Uh, a mix of kind of Mad Libs with some improvising. Okay. So you and I um, are going to take turns uh, based on a prompt giving an answer. So I can start. I'll do a sentence. Then it'll go to you. And we're going to tag team whatever this answer is to the prompt. Okay. Okay. So you've returned from a research stint exploring the depths of the ocean with your favorite person in the world. Me. On our research stint, we discovered a new species of hydrothermal vent-dwelling bacterium that uses balls to power its uh, coffee-making behavior. Uh, we now present this new species to the colleagues for the first time. So this is our this is our prompt. Okay. So I'll start. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming here. We're very excited to showcase this new coffee-making bacterium. I'm really excited to talk about this uh, coffee-making bacterium. Uh, never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined a bacterium that utilizes uh, balls to make coffee. Uh, yeah, excited to be here. Very, yeah, I'm right with you, Karthik. And 
I think right away to our audience, a bacteria that can make coffee is going to be revolutionary. And Karthik and I are already working on how we can fuel these bacteria with more balls. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to maybe starting a company and commercializing this because I think the commercial potential in a bacterium that makes coffee is who cares about plants and coffee plants when uh, you can have a bacterium do it, right? So I think this is going to really take off. We're all going to be billionaires. I think so too. The, it is almost an unstoppable force, I think. Um, so this is why we are so happy to give this talk to everybody. Um, we are researching right now which balls are most effective to create the highest quality coffee. You know, I, I right now I think uh, soccer balls would be good, but we could also switch to cricket balls. Uh, basketballs would be great too. Uh, and I'm also trying to think about what kind of uh, flavor profile this coffee is going to have. I mean, is this going to be, uh, what sort of a roast do you think uh, this is going to resemble? Is it going to be a light roast, uh, medium roast, dark roast? Uh, any thoughts on this? Right. Our pilot data so far suggests that the soccer balls uh, are the darkest roast. Um, the cricket balls seem to be a profile that is similar to Ecuadorian, um, specifically the shade-grown um, and bird-friendly. Um, that's all we have at this moment, but we are working with coffee sommeliers to uh, do direct comparisons as well. Okay, prompt number two. As we're giving this talk, Towards the end, a colleague says, didn't Dr. John Oliver discover that bacterium back in the 60s? Dr. John Oliver was prolific in the 60s, but Dr. Oliver's bacterium famously broke down Godzilla cells <laughs> as a main source of nutrition. We need to now compare and contrast our bacterium versus Dr. John Oliver's bacterium to satisfy <laughs> this colleague. Um, so I, I can start again. Um, so, you know, thank you for bringing up this question. Uh, it is not the first time we received this, but our bacteria will specifically go to the synthetic material of these soccer balls or of these cricket balls to break things down versus this other bacteria has used Godzilla primarily in the past. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is fascinating. I mean, Dr. John Oliver is just a genius. Um, who would have thought that uh, an organism like Godzilla uh, that's radioactive is going to be beaten up by a tiny little bacterium, right? Um, so if I'm never, I'm just never going to be scared of Godzilla again after this discovery. So Dr. John Oliver has literally eliminated the fear of Godzilla amongst humans and our fascination with this creature, with this amazing discovery now. Yes. And, it, you know, I have to thank Dr. John Oliver for coming, you know, discovering this bacteria because a couple months ago when Godzilla destroyed my house, I luckily had some of this bacteria around. And so I know that Godzilla is going to be taken care of. Um, it's not going to harm anyone else. And, you know, it's amazing that these two bacteria species have such large implications. One for getting rid of Godzilla and ours, it makes coffee. It's just going to make their whole world a better place. Yeah. You know, drink coffee and destroy Godzilla. That should be our motto going forward. 
<laughs> Maybe that could be your lab's motto. <laughs> my lab's motto. <laughs> so my lab's motto is, you know, metamorphizing through this interview. So now I've decided that my lab's motto is going to be be chill, drink coffee, and uh, destroy Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. If you could get a shirt with that, I honestly think you could make a decent amount of money from that. <laughs> um, maybe that can be the first shirt from this podcast. Um, okay, our last prompt. We finish the talk and receive a standing ovation. Well done, Karthik, I say to you. Well done, best friend, you reply. The audience leaves except for a woman who approaches us. She is a private philanthropist from the Global Institute for Breathing. She offers us $7 to make breathing easier for everyone but we need to make a research pitch on the fly and why our bacteria can help. Uh, do you feel like starting this one off? Uh, yeah. Breathing is intimately associated with microorganisms. Uh, as humans, we don't breathe ourselves. In fact, uh, we have symbiotic bacteria residing with, within us who are breathing for us. And uh, we must get to the bottom of what these symbiotic bacteria are. And to do that, uh, we would be grateful to have some research funds. So, yeah, this is, I couldn't agree with Karthik more. Um, I think we'd both be comfortable dedicating uh, $3.5 to the research and development, and then the other half the 3.5 to more outreach and implementation of our research. Yes, uh, and I think $3.5 is sufficient money to conduct uh, the research and development. We've already uh, got down all of the procedures to study these bacteria, but we've figured out that some of these bacteria are not behaving too well. They're making coffee uh, instead of uh, breathing. So until we can figure out uh, what's causing some of these bacteria to make coffee instead of uh, breathing, uh, uh, we still have a fair amount of research to do, and that's where we will use these three and a half dollars. Yes, the switch from coffee production in the lungs versus air is, we would say, pretty crucial. Um, I think there would be some other people that disagree with us out there uh, who want a direct line to coffee. Um, but I think, you know, for that three and a half dollars, we could hire an undergrad for about 15 minutes. And that's all we should really need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I, I agree. So I'm looking forward to working with an undergrad for 15 minutes uh, to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I'll say and scene. That was a blast. I'm glad you rolled with that. I, you know, you picked some good answers to make it easier <laughs> for both of us. And I will wrap up this interview here, uh, here too, so you can hop off and get on your way. But Karthik, it's been a blast. Appreciate you coming on here. Yeah, I love doing this. Uh, thank you so much for uh, thinking of me and my lab. We, you know, I'm genuinely, uh, this is wonderful. And I look forward to being on here again in five years to answer some specific yes. questions that you had. Yes. All right. We'll check in on parts in five years. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. I hope you laughed and learned as much as I did during this conversation. If you're still miffed about the ocean plastic, those nonprofits are Ocean Conservancy, Oceana, and Five Gyres, G-Y-R-E-S. Also, check out Dr. John Oliver's video about plastics on the University of YouTube. Also, keep listening. You're about to hear the special something. 
Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush is produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. And sick beats that you're about to hear, also by me, Ben Rush. Activate. Be chill. Be chill. Be chill. Destroy Godzilla. Be chill. Be chill. Be chill. Destroy Godzilla. Coffee. 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 Coffee, coffee, destroy Godzilla. Zilla, 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 Zilla,